0: This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Tyree Nichols and Keenan Anderson were both killed by police in the opening weeks of 2023. And despite the so-called racial reckoning, police killings are actually rose in 2022 with Black Americans suffering disproportionately. So has the anti-police violence movement lost its momentum? And if so, what's the path ahead? There are folks across communities that
1: were in and are now out. And there are also folks who were in before or who
0: got activated in 2020, who are continuing to push and to move. Fighting police violence in a post-racial reckoning world. Coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Five former Memphis police officers face charges, including second-degree murder and the death of Tyree Nichols. Three minutes of Nichols being beaten, tased, and pepper sprayed after a traffic stop was captured by body cameras. The attack left him unrecognizable, according to his family members, who viewed footage earlier this week. As of this recording, local authorities are braced for community outrage when the body cam tape is released to the public at 7 p.m. on Friday. Here are some of the remarks by Memphis Police Chief Sherilyn Davis. I expect you to feel what the Nichols family feels. I expect you to feel outrage in the disregard of basic human rights as our police officers have taken an oath to do the opposite of what transpired on the video. I expect our citizens to exercise their First Amendment right to protest, to demand action and results. But we need to ensure our community is safe in this process. None of this is a calling card for inciting violence or destruction on our community or against our citizens. Tyree Nichols died just days after Keenan Anderson, a young father and a high school English teacher, was killed by the LAPD. Police tased the unarmed Anderson six times in 46 seconds after a traffic incident that was also captured on body cam footage along with Anderson pleading for his life and invoking the name of George Floyd. These deaths are part of a trend. Years after the so-called racial reckoning, police killings of civilians in the United States actually increased in 2022, with Black people twice as likely as whites to be the victims. And yet, the issue of police violence has fallen out of the major newspaper headlines, the 24-hour cable shows, and even much of the political discourse out of Washington, D.C. What happened to the movement to combat police violence? And what can be done to stop the killing? We recently caught up with Philip Atiba Goff to talk about the issue. He's the co-founder and CEO of the Center for Policing Equity. He's also the chair of the African-American Studies Department and a professor in the psychology department at Yale University. Philip Atiba Goff, welcome to A Word. Thanks for having me, Jason. We're closing on three years since George Floyd was murdered. From your perspective, what's the best way to describe the status of the movement to stop police violence against African-Americans?
1: I would say that um, if we're playing the party game, uh, my one word would be uneven. If I had a second word, I would say some hyphenated form of uh, historically identical in that whenever we do this and we do it Every 20 to 30 years, there's a terrible racist police incident. It sparks outrage and uprisings across the country in Black communities or globally. And then we engage in a mass forgetting as if, well, we got really exhausted about that. I don't know that anything got done, but I'm tired of talking about it. So let's wait for the next 20 to 30 years. And so we're in exactly the same kind of cycle that we were in after the Kerner Commission, after the Rodney King beating and acquittal, um, uh, and that we're in again today.
0: So is it that the black community has sort of scaled back out of disappointment? Or is it the white community has said, "Okay, we don't want to deal with this anymore. We threw some money at the problem, which which is actually happening here.
1: Well, you and I are sitting here talking about it today. So you and I didn't forget. I teach African-American studies, so I tend not to forget. It's literally what I study every day. What I mean by the we is that there were folks who got activated around this, and it's not their personal thing. It doesn't happen in their community. They were in good faith saying, look, I work at a place that that doesn't really deal with these issues, but we got our own problems. Let's go ahead. And, um, and that's why we've talked about it as a racial reckoning, though I have a problem with that, because a reckoning means you actually faced it, and I guarantee you we did not. There were groups of folks across racial lines that were engaged, that were trying to figure out a way to do it every day, and that is uneven. There are also, by the way, folks who got into this within Black communities who said, you know what, this is going to be my thing. I'm newly activated, or people are paying attention to me for the first time, and this is great. And now they've shifted and they're doing voting rights, or they're doing reproductive justice, or they're doing whatever else is the thing that's going to get them in front of a camera or get them more Twitter followers or what have you. So it's not just white communities or Latinx communities or Asian communities. Um, By the way, it's never Native communities because Native communities never forget any of this stuff. But there are folks across communities that were in and are now out. And there are also folks who were in before or who got activated in 2020 who are continuing to push and to move. So just because we're not seeing national coverage of Keenan Anderson doesn't mean that the California state legislature isn't moving on stuff. And it doesn't mean that folks in St. Louis and in Oakland um, and in Ithaca uh, and Tompkins County, New York, don't have really impressive gains to show for what they've done the last two years. And they've still got momentum that's why I mean uneven. There are folks who are opportunists and folks who were easily forgetful, and there are folks who have been in it to win it since before and will be in it to win it till they're taken off this earth.
0: One of the things that people always talk about is like, hey, we need more police officers who are similar in race and culture to the people they're policing. We need them to be from the neighborhoods. But we've seen in these situations, there were officers of color involved in Anderson's death. All five of the Tennessee officers involved in killing Tyree Nichols are black. So- is diversifying police really going to do anything about this issue of police violence? So will it do
1: anything is a different question than is that where we should focus? To the degree that there is a debate between reform and abolition on policing or the carceral state or anything else, um, it is, in my mind, the original political black political debate, which is Do we make something better? Do we make this system we've got better for ourselves and stop catching hell tomorrow? Or do we say that's not going to be sufficient and we need to tear it all down and build something entirely different up? And if you look at the history of those conversations, there, are, I mean, there's points to be made on both sides of the conversation, but usually the, the most radical progress for black communities has happened when those two things are held in creative tension. It's not the case that the only way that you can envision a world where we don't have systems of punishment and we only have systems of care is that you do nothing about the system tomorrow right? And black folks catching hell will tell you, yeah, I'd like to have a system where it's massively better and it's not it wasn't set up as a sort of an analog to slavery. Also, please stop beating my ass. So when when, when you ask the question, will it do anything, I have changed my mind on this. So I used to say out loud for lots of people to hear, get my ass beat um, by someone who's black versus get my ass beat by someone who's white. My ass still got beat. It hurts the same. I've also said it is politically different if the entire force looks white, and it's an occupying force in a black community. But more recent research by Bokhar ba, um, Jonathan Mumolo, Dean Knox, and others demonstrated that in Chicago, with the best data that we've ever had, that you see a massive difference between white male and black officers, white male and white women officers. And I had never seen evidence that was remotely convincing that the demographics of the officers would make a difference. But the white women had a vastly lower use of force rates because they weren't beating black people. They were not using force against black people. And that was... That was, i got to say, a little bit shocking to me to see it in such stark relief. And it's really strong data. Part of the reason why I hadn't believed it prior is because our own data never showed it when we did experiments with officers and we let them follow them out into the world. And the other data just didn't show so stark things. And it showed some uh, results and some non-results. But this was matched for where they were, the time of, of day, all of the things you'd want to do match. It was really apples to apples. And it showed significant differences. That doesn't say to me that in every city it's like that, because if you've ever been to Chicago, Chicago is a different kind of city. But it it says to me that it's possible that that's the ceiling, the most difference the demographics could make, but they made an enormous difference. And so it was not intuitive to me that that would be a thing. Um, It is absolutely not the thing that I would suggest. We got to make that our number one priority. But I no longer scoff at that as a potential way to mitigate some of the terrible harms that we see. I would only say in every city where I have worked, it is the fact of the police and not the kind of the police that is the biggest lever for reducing the state-sponsored violence, right? And I take that from working with the police in many of those cities and the police saying, if you send us there, we have a limited number of tools and we're going to use them. So if you don't want these outcomes, stop sending us
0: to take a short break we come back more on the rising police killings of black americans this is a word with jason johnson stay tuned this is jason johnson host of a word slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the psychology and politics of fighting police violence with Philip Atiba Goff. He leads the Center for Policing Equity. Continue with this idea of sort of demographic influence on this. You got a black woman who's the head of the police department in Memphis. We now have a black woman. Karen Bass is now the mayor of Los Angeles. Many people believe that having these black mayors can actually have an impact on how some of these police departments are operating. Is there any evidence for that? Is there any evidence for black mayors either reigning in these departments, holding them accountable? Where's the data pointing as far as these black mayors and policing in cities?
1: I can tell you we don't know a whole heck of a lot about the black mayors. We know a little bit about black chiefs of police, which is kind of a similar uh, question. And it has always been the case that when you put black people in charge of oppressive systems, that the systems change less than the people in charge of them do. Right. Um. There is some evidence – you asked, is there any evidence? There is some evidence in peer-reviewed journals that I would trust that says when you put a black person in charge of a police department, you get more accountability, so more sustained complaints. Um, you see a lower uh, rate of arrest and a lower use, uh, use of force. But these are marginal effects, right? And uh, the question uh, I don't think should be – is this a thing that could have any impact, but is this where we should put our resources? It's fine to say we want more representative policing. I think in general, that's going to be good. It's definitely okay to say we want a more representative democracy. When I started doing this work, there were two to three black chiefs at what are called the Major Cities Chiefs Association, which is just the largest law enforcement agencies, uh, municipal law enforcement agencies across the United States. And now it's majority black majority black and that's not that long a time in the the history of things, 15 some odd years. That clearly hasn't solved the problem. It's not majority uh, of cities that say, racism's not a thing anymore. So It's definitely not going to be the whole package, and I would make the argument that demographics and personnel are a relatively smaller portion of the problem than we've decided to give up on whole swaths of communities. We've not invested in the resources they need to keep themselves safe. and Instead of giving them those resources so they're not in crisis, we quote-unquote solve crisis by sending people whose job it is to decide whether or not you continue to breathe or live outside of a cage. That's an insane way to try and solve problems that we have made choices about as policies. We told those communities, here are the problems we're willing to let you have, and now we're going to punish you if you happen to fall into it. That is a much bigger lever on fixing those problems than changing the demographics of the people who are in charge of systems designed to do exactly what they're doing.
0: Kenan Anderson, who was killed by the LAPD, was the cousin of Patrice Collars co-founder of Black Lives Matter. She's been accused of mismanaging millions of donations to the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation received after George Floyd's death. Now, I want to make it clear to the audience, because we interviewed the author of that investigation, the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation is not every Black Lives Matter organization on the ground. But the average person doesn't know those distinctions. Phil, do you think those kinds of stories have had an impact on the movement? Have they had an impact on local chapters? Have they had an impact on the branding of Black Lives Matter when they're trying to negotiate with elected officials and police officers in different cities?
1: The first question, uh, does does it matter for the movement and the ability for folks to organize? I, I mean, absolutely. I think, unfortunately, it does. You get bad press, though, not just on movement for black lives, but you get bad press on individuals. The more of those things come out, the more folks who are inclined to try and get invested see it all as a grift. And it actually doesn't matter whether or not there's any validity to it. Um, it's that yeah, this this feels dirty. And people don't want to get involved in something that's obviously urgent, but also feels morally dirty because they know it's not going to pay as well. It's going to be a hard road to hoe. There's not a lot of fame in any of this stuff. And for sure not for the people who are on the ground doing the work. So it hurts in that front. It also can hurt the legitimacy of a particular organization, um, though I don't think you know the history with Patrice does that in this particular way. And I want to, I want to be also very clear. This is also part of the systems right? It is not the case that black folks who are, are passionate about other black folks getting their freedom, get financial training and a, like, get a controller um, over their organizations when they get the money. What they get is the money. And then 10 minutes later, someone's like, okay, and so um, have you incorporated as a 501c3? And uh, how are you doing your audits before your 990? That is not a normal part of how anybody works. None of these folks went to business school, but all of it makes it harder. All of it makes it harder because we have an image of what movement work is supposed to be. It's supposed to be morally perfect individuals sacrificing everything in response to a personal tragedy for the betterment of everyone. We need our movement leaders to die for our sins because it is uncomfortable for us to understand that our original sins of racism in this country have stayed with us and are core to our current successes. So it is much easier to dither about the moral fortitude of individuals whose job it was to redeem us from our sins than to look personally at those sins and to maintain any kind of daily practice of righteousness and redemption.
0: One of the more problematic things that came out of the murder of George Floyd was the loss of control over language. And we got in all these conversations about defund the police. White Democrats went nuts about it. Black Democrats who didn't know any better went nuts about it. There were all these conversations that defund the police was harming people and affecting elections where there was never any empirical evidence one way or another. I want to ask you, Phil, from a practical standpoint, were there examples of police budgets being lessened? And that money being put to better use, and are there results of that actually being effective?
1: Yeah, so Minneapolis is actually the best example because they started doing it before George Floyd. They took an amount out um, that was in the millions um, prior to um, 2020, in part because activists were demanding it, in part because they got some evidence that a disproportionate amount of their use of force was happening towards their homeless population. I don't know if you've ever been to Minneapolis in the winter, but it's not nice to be outside. Um, and so people try and stay indoors, but what ended up happening was when people were out, outside and it was cold, people were like, that makes me uncomfortable, they would call the cops. And the cops kept being like, well, we're showing up, they're not done anything illegal, but we're supposed to detain them, so they're fighting us. We could just not do all this by erecting heated tents. And that's part of, I mean, it's, it's not exactly the, that, but it was part of what happened. And during the three years that they were pushing for that, they reduced their use of force by about 18% across the board. Right. So there is good evidence that if you shift some resources upstream to prevent the crisis, then you don't need to call out for help in the midst of crisis and that that makes everything better. But of course, we know, and I'm sure your listeners all know, that since 2020, on average, police budgets have increased, not decreased. Right. And you talked about loss of control of language. I just think it's really important. There was literally no one who threatened any elected official to say you must use defund. There was no one who said you had to be lazy and unimaginative and wait for multiple years and then complain about the language that you claim was supposed to be built for you when it was clearly activists building things for activists. When we hear complaints, about defund, I just want to remind people that those complaints are admissions of laziness, of sloth, and a lack of imagination. Because politicians have access to microphones and television cameras way more than activists do. And the fact that they didn't come up with anything better during that period of time was their fault. And activists have no obligation to give language to politicians who are not serving
0: their interests. I think for a while there was a belief in elected officials being able to make a difference. We had a President Obama who said things and then Trump was like, yeah, you know, cops beat guys up, beat them up before you put them in. And then you have President Joe Biden come in and basically say, ah, we got to fund the police more. And I don't really want to talk about this one way or another. Is there a lessening of faith in national politicians and federal politicians to do anything since we've seen so many bills at the federal level just die? Has the movement now sort of moved to look, we got to do this at the governor level or the state house or state Senate because the federal is a waste of time.
1: I mean, I sure hope so. I don't think serious people who've been organizing and and engaged in activism around this ever thought that the federal level was much more than a bully pulpit. So everyone who's been serious about this has been working at state and local since well before um, the uprising of, of 2020. My hope is that more people understand that. But my guess is and my experience is that they don't. And that's in part because most folks in the United States don't understand how our government at different levels work. And more importantly, most folks think policing is simple. But our systems of incarceration, our systems of of criminal legal issues are at least as complex as our healthcare system, right? It's at least as capacious, at least least as, um, you know, discreet and ugly and uh, dysfunctional. And that means that getting into the weeds of fixing it you need that level of sophistication. You may have principles that are clear, right, and that are simple, but the problem itself and all of the ways it shows up is incredibly complex. Not only do we, most folks not know that, but most folks don't understand that it is complex. So it's not just that we don't understand the complexities, we don't admit that it is complex and we don't talk about it that way. And the result is that folks are like, well, let me get the p- the person in charge to be my kind of person when it does happen that way, but we don't get the outcome. We're frustrated and we give up and we see a a decrease of of engagement with movement politics.
0: We're going to take a short break and we come back more about responding to police violence against the black community with Philip Atiba Goff. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. listening to a word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about efforts to stop police killings of black Americans with Philip Atiba Goff of the Center for Policing Equity. One of the ironies of this movement is that some of these killers are actually going to jail. The man who murdered George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery's killers, including an ex-cop, and the Texas officer who killed Atiana Jefferson were all convicted. Do you think that the idea that the justice system can sometimes work after these instances Is in any way helping? I can't tell you what the data say
1: yet because we don't have enough examples of that. Um, But we do know that there appears to be a higher rate of conviction for excessive force across the country. Okay. Um, That's a trend line that looks like it's going to be significant when we give it enough time to breathe, pun fully intended. Um, I can also tell you from talking with law enforcement that it is absolutely on their mind. Um, As much as folks will say, you know, I'd rather be tried by 12 than carried by 6, right, so they're worried about their their personal safety, A 100% they're saying, you know, I could get fired. I didn't think I could get fired for something like this, but I could get fired. They may not be thinking that as much as some folks in the community might want. They may not be thinking about that every day, but they're definitely thinking about that. What changes to behavior? Not sure. For sure, not enough. And the fear of a certain kind of accountability isn't going to get us past places where we tell police to go and do this. They do it. We don't like it, right? But it's, per- it's not only legal, but it's within the policy books. And there's, no- there's not going to be accountability for doing what they're told and what is perfectly legal. But yes, I do think that there is a change in police culture post-2020 as a result of this increased rate of conviction in terms of the mindset of officers and the culture within policing – I don't know. Is that like a 0.5% decrease in some cities? Uh, maybe it's a, as much as a 10% decrease in, in certain places. And are there negative consequences as well? So you get more rudeness, less likely to engage, um, more uh, racist language, um, and then walking away. Like I have no sense of the full picture of it because we haven't had enough time um, and there hasn't been enough uh, data for me to say confidently as a scientist what the outcomes will be. I'll tell you it's different, and I'll tell you what that means a couple years from now, probably.
0: Have you seen cultural changes? Do you think that police in movies, police in TV shows, have you seen a change in sort of propaganda pop culture since George Floyd? Hollywood is invested in lazy storytelling.
1: I know as a person who has run a production company for the last two years, right? Um, uh, and what I mean by that is, Policing gives in the same way that medical dramas do, and that now we're a little bit we're seeing with fire dramas, it gives an easy procedural. There is drama every day, and it's, it's easy, saccharine, lazy drama. And I'm not talking about individual shows, but that's part of the reason why the, the genre has proliferated even in these moments, right? And if you're going to tell a procedural from the perspective of law enforcement, You cannot do that in this country without humanizing and focusing on the perspective of, which means it is almost impossible to faithfully tell a story about what those entities do in vulnerable communities. And by the way, that you have never seen a vulnerable community procedural. There is not easy drama because, and and this is the thing that while it might might be a nuanced point, and I apologize if I say it in a mumble mouth way, I kind of feel like it's important to get. If I showed you... I'm um, just the images of a cute but uh, quirky lady. She's in glasses. She's walking her dog. She falls down and gets muddy. A gentleman who's clearly British picks her up and she embarrasses herself further. You know exactly where we are. We're in a rom-com. That's a meet cute. They're going to have a hard time and they're going to be together at the end. That's the work. That storytelling thing that I just did, that's the work that genre does. We see kinds of stories enough that we were able to make shortcuts and we fully understand what's supposed to happen. We've got genres for white supremacy made human. We have no genres for black humanity. So you don't just have to tell the story of black people. You need to get people familiar with the milieu of blackness in order to tell it, right? The reason why black folks go bananas when we see um, black folks on TV to this day The reason why we enjoy it and why we celebrate it on Twitter and the rest is because we're so unused to seeing any forms of our humanity, our full humanity, told in front of a larger audience. And we're hoping on some level, both consciously and subconsciously, that that will help people understand our stories. We don't have a genre for telling stories about black humanity. We have all kinds of genres for telling stories about white people redeemed. And that's that, I think, is at least as much of a problem as the particulars of telling police stories is the, the, the dearth of the other side of that.
0: You know, we began this conversation with talking about where is the movement? You say the movement's kind of uneven. If somebody listens to this, listens to the research that, that you've talked about, of the stories we've seen out of Los Angeles and Memphis, if someone wants to get back involved, if someone's like, hey, you know what? I have been sort of blanking out and I didn't want to pay attention to these stories, but there were things that I used to do that I want to do again. How can someone get involved in these kinds of changes and reforms today? What are the avenues to get involved today? Because, hey, you may or may not be protesting the same way, but there's got to be something you can be doing in 2023.
1: There's a number of things you can be doing. The first thing that I would tell anybody is have a regular way to get information, right? Find a reliable set of sources, not just one, because one is just going to miss stuff. I'm happy for everybody to sign up for the policing equity newsletter, but we don't get everything in your city and in your town. Um, So a mix of national and local folks who are going to give you information. And I say the first part because the second part is most important. If you really want to get involved somehow, you want to just stay abreast of it, the most important thing is to get yourself psychologically ready to do this for a long time. Whatever it is that is the resolutions you keep rather than the resolutions that flame out at the end of the year, that's what you need to do. You got to strap in. But there are are local ways to get involved, both from activist zines, um, newsletters, regular meetings, and if you care particularly about policing, get to know what your policing schedule is. When is the budget coming up? Because there always is public comment on that. When is the union contract being renegotiated? How many years out does it get? What information Do they make, did they make public? And who's fighting for more of that information? That will get you at the, at the very least a sense of the players locally for you um, and a sense of the issues that activists know about. You do that in a couple of national places, you will be better informed than the vast majority of folks. And it will feel good to at least know what the heck is coming. Those are the things you can start with. The other thing I'd say is that there's almost certainly a group of local activists who are doing better, bolder, smarter work than you would ever imagine. And uh, if you have the means of 10, 25, 30 bucks, they need your support more than any national organization. As someone who runs a national organization, we frequently will say to our donors, if you're not giving two to one local to national, then you're not doing the way that it's supposed to be. Those small donations make an enormous, enormous difference in the, the vitality of your local democracy.
0: Philip Atiba Goff is the CEO and co-founder of the Center for Policing Equity. Thanks so much for a great conversation. Thanks for having me, Jason. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Operations for Podcasts. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a Word.